Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is Ryan Tansom here. Today's guest's name is Tim Kieran. Tim has an awesome story for us because he started in the family business, Western Graphics, that was in the printing industry, and he started working for his dad. He eventually bought it from his dad when it was around 3 million and 20-ish employees and ended up topping out at 80 employees, around 11 million, and Tim explains to us how he used his six requirements to find a buyer that accomplished all of the goals that he wanted to. There was a pending lease on his building that was gonna require him to stay five years more into the business and he needed to get a bunch of things done to make sure his six requirements were accomplished and so he could quote unquote land the plane. And Tim shares with us all of the things that he did prior to the business uh, acquisition and what he wants to do now in his life after business, which is working with business owners on a variety of different levels. So Tim does a fantastic job at sharing the details about how he went about prepping his business for sale and finding the buyer. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by The Valley Advantage. The Valley Advantage is a platform delivered via peer groups and or one-on-one to help you build a valuable company that can thrive without you while putting an exit plan in place so you have the options to sell when you want to who you want for how much you want. You're able to manage the business by the numbers, work in the business as much or as little as you want, and you fully understand how the business impacts your personal financials. If you want to know more, check out the show notes or the website. So without further ado, here's the interview with Tim. Tim, how are you doing today? Great, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm really uh, pumped that you're on the show. I got to finally meet you at an event that we both did here locally in the Twin Cities, and for our listeners, uh, you were on the panel, but for our listeners' sake, can you kind of just go back to the day that you decided to jump into business for yourself? Because it's been quite a while now, so I'm just kind of curious, when did you decide to be an entrepreneur? Well, it was my dad's fault <laughs> because he he, he uh, had the entrepreneurial seizure and left a, a corporate job to start and actually bought a small little printing business. Uh, in the Seven Corners area here locally in Minneapolis. And so I was uh, sort of employed at, at the young age, I think of 13 or 14, uh, when child labor laws were not enforced. <laughs> and and uh, learned uh, my first job as the janitor and then uh, kind of you know moved into the bindery and did, did all the jobs in the printing company. So I watched a entrepreneur start from scratch and watched all the good things and bad things that happened. So when I got out of college, I knew that's kind of what I wanted to do, and uh, he brought me on board. So that's how I got started in the family business and the family printing business. So from so you you saw all the good and the bad, and you still decided to do it, which means you're you are a true entrepreneur when you when you kind of have that the blindness to all the ups and downs. And I, you know, I'm just kind of curious, you know, so from starting after college to obviously taking over for yourself, can you? What was the time frame there, and how did the conversations go with your dad? You, yeah, what, what I did is um, I joined him right out of college and uh, started as, the I think, the first controller for the company. 
And uh, he was a, what was great about him was he was a sales guy, and he never wanted to be the manager. So, you know, kind of the Michael Gerber, E-Myth guy. He was the technician, and he never and the entrepreneur, but he never wanted to be the manager. So he, he basically said as soon as I was ready, so I think I was probably 27, he said take the thing over and start running with it. So, you know, I was way too young. It was sort of um, trial by I fire, but he he knew in his heart he didn't want to do it. So, I was running it uh, the business at 27 years old. So you know I ran it for 23 years, and I was in the business, I think for like 36 years, uh, going all the way back to when I was 13 or 14. And then I bought it in 2001 for him, and I owned it for 15 years. So yeah, I saw I saw him as an entrepreneur. I saw uh, what kept him up at night, what made him excited. And I just sort of learned by watching and uh, and doing. So when you say, I mean, twenty seven is um, pretty pretty sweet age to be able to jump into to that kind of responsibility. And when he says take over, define what that means. Is that did you? Because you said you bought it in two thousand one. Did how did you structure? Was it responsibility and roles first, and then how figuring out how to buy it second? Like, kind of walk us through how you guys structured that. So yeah, when I took over in '93, I took over as president of the company, and you know he again, and he kind of gave me free will there. So that was kind of it was almost like a you know second birth of the company because I came at it from more of a professional manager level, and so I brought in um, you know back in the day it was TQM and you know when Good to Great came around and Rockefeller Habits. Eventually, I brought in EOS Traction. So I professionalized the business. I brought in some professional managers to help me run it like a business instead of running it like a family. And it was really kind of the, the, the journey there for me was the ability to take a, you know, kind of a, a small business that was running a little bit ad hoc and actually put it into a professional model. And we always acted probably maybe two or three times bigger than we were. <laughs> and I, I just felt like that was, you know, the way to run a great business was to uh was to put some process behind uh, some of the madness that happens in a small business so what, what was the kind of the infrastructure that set up like at that size for some kind of way to benchmark the company when you took it over yeah so i took it over we were probably three million and um you know maybe around 20 people or so 25 people and then uh you know we grew it up the printing industry was going well there so we we grew it up before we automated and did some integration and some capital expenditures. We probably ran it up to about 80 people at the top and 11 million. And then as we used technology as print industry kept changing, you know, we were able to get a lot more sales per employee dollars. So then we, you know, we were probably around that 50 or 60 employees for a lot of years. And uh, so we had a, we had a management team, um, you know, a sales leader, a operations leader and a, and a finance leader. I mean, it sounds, you know, just from knowing a little bit more about your story, I mean, it's interesting because I just, for the first time, realized that you came in as the controller and it kind of makes a little bit of sense. Do you think, you know, knowing the numbers and like that and the managerial passion that you have, is that what was kind of the, the passion for the the way you systematize things? I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of automation and leanness and all that kind of um genetic makeup in you i mean describe kind of your management's style throughout the years is and i don't know if that makes sense yeah it does yeah 
Yeah. So, I mean, I went to my undergrad was accounting degree, but, but I was never uh, interested in, in being an accountant. And, but I knew that if I knew the numbers, you know, seeing my dad from the sales side, I knew if I knew the numbers that that was going to serve me well as an entrepreneur because he had kind of street smarts, but he didn't really have the, so the accounting background. And my uh, cousin that was older than me told me, he was like six years older, he said, you know, an accountant can always become a businessman. A businessman can never become an accountant. <laughs> and he, he said, you know, I wish I had learned the numbers. So I did that. And I actually took my CPA and passed my CPA. And my, you know, my roommates thought I was crazy because they're like, you're not even going into public accounting. Why would you take that beating? And uh, I just decided I wanted to have the full spectrum. So uh, I came at I do come at it from my numbers. But actually what happened to me, my management style is people and culture and then numbers. So it's kind of a cool combination because I know the numbers and I know, uh, you know how to be profitable. And so we were always very profitable as a business. But then I, I was really interested in using um, sort of people and employees the right way and building a great culture. So at Western, that was kind of our, you know, our, my main passion in owning a business was I wanted to create a company where we could, we could uh, win as a team and we could reward each other as a team. And so I, I kind of built the, the culture and we brought in the, some of the technical stuff. We brought in lean manufacturing. We brought in EOS traction but I was, I was always there to sort of help build a better employee culture. So we were six-time best workplace in America winners, and I really believed that if we had sort of the – I know we had the hands of the employees, but if we got the heart and the head of everyone together and we kind of rode together, that you know it could be a great company. And that's kind of what my basis for joining the business and buying the business was. I wanted to have a great company with great people getting great results. And as long as I – I had that, then I was all in on the business. So how do you, you know, was there a specific thing that you used to do to um, to tie the numbers and all the infrastructure and automation and, and operational stuff to the people in the culture? Was there, like, how did you balance those two as you were uh, growing the business? I call it, um, somebody gave this to me, I call it sharing the insomnia. <laughs> so... <laughs> If things aren't going well in the business, we should all be waking up at 2.39 in the morning. And not just me, not just the owner, not just the executive team. And if things are going great, you know, we should all be sleeping in. So sharing the insomnia was, let's share the numbers. We were, you know, I read Jack Spack's book, Open Book Management. And, you know, I was kind of a, I'm a lifelong learner. So I did all the Lencioni stuff. I did Michael Gerber and the E-Myth and Good to Great. And, and I kind of knew... I knew from all studying all that that uh, the reality is is that we're not going to get very far if we just got one or two people at the top who are mm -hmm. doing all the think all the thinking. So we, I brought that back down and saying, you know, we're going to win or lose together. And so using uh, continuous improvement, some things we we went on an improvement journey together as a company. And uh, at at the end in sixteen before I sold it. We had done, the employees had done 3,800 improvement projects. Holy crap. And yeah, we were, we were, we were doing four to 600 and we only had 40 or 50 people, but we were doing 400 to 600 improvements a year, all from employees. And so that's how I kind of married the numbers with the people 
is you know we we knew if, if we did improvements that the numbers would show up and we had profit sharing and we shared the profits so it was kind of a you know we 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 built it together and made sure that if we were winning together we were sharing it together and if we weren't if, if we weren't then they knew because with open book management i shared top line and bottom line numbers with mm-hmm. everybody every month so define what you know 3800 improvement projects i mean what is is that does that range from implementing an ERP system to giving someone a kudos or like where where does that I mean I know that's obviously a drastic example but like where do, what what would you define as those projects? So our improvements were generally small uh, projects or small improvements, and our philosophy was the smaller the improvement the better it was because when you reach for these big projects like that ERP as an example. Mm-hmm. What happens is no, not many people can participate. So, or if you make it, you know, where you got to have a project management degree or you got to have an MBA, the, the people on the floor, on the line are like, well, I can't do that. So if you're looking for ten thousand dollar, you know, big improvements, you know, I can't do that kind of stuff. So we emphasize the small improvements. And that way, we knew everyone could play, and everyone actually could be accountable for making improvements and getting better every day. And so the, the improvements, uh, an example of an improvement would be, uh, let's say, um, you know, we have a bunch of, uh, let's say, dull tool bits and we need to keep them sharp. Well, in, in the old day, before the improvement, they would just throw them in the drawer. And then when they needed sharp uh, tool bits, they would run around in the drawer for 10 or 15 minutes and try and find one. And the improvement was they just popped up a visual control board on their drill press and they had a, a red lane and a green lane, and the green lane had the sharp tool bits, and the and the red lane had the uh, the dull ones. And then the maintenance guy knew, you know, when he was going to have to have them sharpened to, to keep the line running. So they could be real simple. I, I they they were whatever took your frustration out. That counted yeah, as an improvement. Yeah, yeah. So if you're if you're frustrated, instead of complaining about it, and going home and looking to kick the dog. You know, pick up a weapon, do an improvement, spend some time and make your life easier. And if they made their life easier or the department better or the company better, then we all kind of succeeded. So they were, they were very small stuff. I mean, I remember one it was we had like a double door on our dock and so the paper companies could deliver paper after hours. And so they would – these guys, you know, that were driving the trucks, they didn't really know us, but they would put the pallets against the uh, dock door, not knowing that the dock door is actually – opened back towards them so they would they would they would pin us pin it in and so when our guys would come in on monday morning or a saturday morning because we had a weekend shift they'd have to undo the whole pallet because they couldn't get a pallet jack through the dock doors and so what they the improvement was they just taped out basically an area where the dock doors could swing on and they just basically said no pallets here hmm. yep so, just simple I, little I simple it. things yeah. Well, and and the, it's the compound effect too. Thirty eight hundred is a lot, and I'm I'm sure things just constantly kept getting better. And so, when you look back, what was the what was? I guess it's two questions. One before you sold the business, did you have like one thing that you think that you did that you were the most proud of? And then the second part of that question is, did it change with hindsight? with when you sold like so was there one project that it was just that kind of your guys's you know golden golden goose and then did it continue to be that one after you'd sold when that you believe may or may not have impacted your sale i think the most proud 
thing was that we had teams, we had a continuous improvement culture. And so everybody was on a team and those teams worked together to make improvements. And then we used to, in our employee meeting, we had an all employee meeting every month. We, those teams would get up and, and basically brag to the other teams, their best three improvements. And so those are, that would be like my proudest moment was every, every month when we'd shut down for 40 minutes and get together the whole company, having, having people who really didn't know, who were nervous about public speaking, getting up and kind of uh, explaining their best improvement that they made and just kind of watching those people grow both as individuals and as teammates. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah, that would be, you know, where I knew we were, I knew we were really doing well with the bottom line numbers because we were very profitable, but I could see it in, you know, sort of the way they carried themselves and the careers that they were building. That's awesome. I mean, it must have made you feel proud because I mean, you're, you're, you're enabling that kind of culture. And, you know, from what I'm, from what I gathered too, I mean, you're, you're so people oriented and and what you're trying to do to help individuals. What happened to you to think that you needed to sell? Like, what was the triggering event that precipitated this journey that, that you went on? couple of things. Great question. When I was 22, I was uh, a senior in college and I was taking an advanced business class. And, and the class was, I'm going to give you guys Harvard Business Review case studies. And I want you to read them and then figure out how to fix this company. And then we're, we're going to share as a group everybody's ideas on how to put these businesses back together. And that was sort of like when I when I was doing that, I was like, God, it didn't feel like I was studying. It didn't feel like I was working. And I knew right then I always wanted to work with business owners and the business puzzles. And I always had that as an itch. So then I, I jumped into the business and I was given the reins to kind of build my own culture and my, my own company. And I, and I love that. But I always wanted to work with business owners exclusively. And so I joined peer groups. So I've been in peer groups for 21 years. And so I used that as once a month I would get in a peer group and I'd be around 10 or 12 business owners and I'd kind of scratch that itch once a month. But as I got into my late 40s, I'd always wanted to do what I wanted to do at 22, but I was having so much fun in the business. Um, and then as I got closer to turn to 50, I said, am I ever going to do this? Am I ever going to go work with business owners exclusively 100%? And so that's kind of what set me off on selling the business and exiting the business and going to work as a consultant and as a peer group facilitator full time. So, I mean, it's it's interesting that you had that foresight that young to build and continued along. I mean, for decades uh, working in the business. So obviously, you were getting that itch pretty decently scratched while you while you're running your own business. Did. Did something get boring at the office? I mean, was it the actual t fact that you were turning 50? I mean, was there something that, that led you to internally reflect like that? Well, I, was, I, I had a, a guy in my uh, – I was in a national like employee engagement peer group, and a guy that was in my group who was about 10 years older than me from he – he lived in Hawaii, tough break. <laughs> and he was a um, construction guy. And he, he was 10 years ahead of me, and so he sold his – construction company at the right time when he had the right energy and he went into consulting and he did a presentation that was called landing the plane 
and and his analogy was what us entrepreneurs and owners forget is that when we start a business or buy a business, we're taken off in an airplane, and while we're up there, you're you we forget the fact that we're flying a plane, which is the business, and that we're gonna have to land the plane, <laughs> and if we don't if we don't plan ahead, we're gonna crater it, and so he said you've got to kind of figure out what you want to do as business owners because, uh, and I read this somewhere else or heard this somewhere else, that the journey ends not when you, the journey, the journey doesn't end for a business when you become successful. The journey ends when you leave the business successfully. Mm-hmm. And so he said, you can't put a business on autopilot forever. It'll run out of fuel and it'll crater. So I knew I had to kind of figure out, well, I had to listen to kind of, my my clock so i think what happened is yeah i i had scratched that itch but i really wanted to do that full time and i knew that there was a couple things going on in the business where the real estate we'd sold the the real estate and we were leasing back and i had a new lease renewal coming up in a couple years and i knew if i released the building for five years during that time i was going to have to spend a lot of money on new equipment and that was going to keep me in for another five to seven years so i knew if i if i I renewed the lease. I was going to be in for 10, and then I was going to be in my 60s. And I kind of felt like, boy, I might miss my window on getting out on my own. So that that was kind of the mm-hmm. what got me thinking about. And and then his coaching, which is, you know, it's a timing deal. You've got to you got to figure out how to land the plane. You've got to have a plan to do it. And so, really, for me, what happened with me is I had a deadline on renewing the building lease, and that gave me kind of a short time frame about really two to three years to figure out what I was going to do. Which is nice because you actually have something to work towards. And I think that's what a lot of people uh, struggle with is they're on autopilot, but they have zero idea where they're going to land the plane. <laughs> they, they know they may, may or may not even need to land the plane, but they don't even know where they're going to go. And, you know, you've got some foresight. And, you know, you had an interesting comment that I really appreciated when you were up on the panel. And so it, it's, I want to I kind of get into your head of, like, how you – how you were struggling with this because you so now you got this deadline you've got something to kind of work towards i'm kind of curious on two things one is like where did you start when you kind of became aware of all this and then when you finally spoke the words in front of your peer group and why that was so challenging i know that's kind of two loaded questions um so let's go with actually the second one first which is just admitting it that you were going to be selling the business. You said that was such a struggle. Can you explain to us why? Yeah, so I mean in the the you know, the analytical part of me, that finance part of me and the emotional side of me, the culture side of me or the people side of me. I mean, that's kind of an interesting fight because the financial guy is saying, "Hey, you know, we got to financially we got to take care of ourselves." And the emotional or the people side of me is saying, "We got to take care of the employees." Mm-hmm. So I was struggling. It was a family business, you know. It was second generation. I knew my kids didn't weren't going to be third generation, so that that was easy. But I, yeah, I couldn't. I was having a hard time actually getting there and deciding to sell it. So it was rolling around in my head. I knew I wanted to. I knew there was a window that was coming that would allow me to do it, but it didn't make it easier for me emotionally to make the decision. So I was in my peer group meeting and we were going through our goals every every year we have a retreat and we we're going through the goals for the year the next year and this was in november 
And I, I'm usually pretty direct with what I'm trying to get done. I have goals that I work on every year. So I'm one of those guys. But I was mumbling around, and finally one of my peer, peer group guy goes, what are you trying to say? <laughs> and, I, and I said, and I took a long, deep breath, and I said, I think I'm going to sell Western. And I had never said it out loud before. And he goes, well, yeah. And, I mean, you know, we, we kind of get that. I mean, we know that that's what you're supposed to be doing. And uh, it took me, you know, one of the things I would share with other business owners is it took me, especially family business people, it took me literally a year emotionally to make the decision and to actually start moving down the path. I mean, I spent a year. I had to talk to my mom and dad about it. I talked to my wife and family about it. I had three sisters that had worked in the business. No one had been working there. But, you know, it was dad's business, and we'd all work there. My mom had worked there. So, you know, and I uh, had 20 – I mean, I, I was on payroll for 36 years. I mean, that was my whole life. And so it took me a year emotionally just to get clear enough in my head that this was going to be okay. And, you know, my family and my mom and dad said, you know, this is good. Just follow your heart on it. So, you know, as you're asking these close families and friends – what what were the questions you were asking him? What am I doing? Am I, you know, <laughs> am I am I in my am I in a midlife crisis? Am I, you know, am I? Does this sound normal? You know, I mean, I didn't have anything. You know, my dad was just a you know. Once he got in the business, you know, until he sold it to me, he wasn't going to leave the business. And you know, so I was struggling with you know, am I really supposed to be giving up? Uh, this legacy and uh, the Karen family that had owned it for that many years. So I was just testing the water saying, am I crazy? Am I midlifing here? What am I doing? And, you know, everyone was coming back to me saying, you know, you've been, you've, you've talked about it. We know, you know, look at your bookshelf. I mean, you've got every business book on the planet. Um, you're, you're kind of a, you're, you're really a business guy. You're not really a printing guy. And so if that's really what you want to do, cause I do have a lot of passion uh, around a lot of things just said you should just follow your heart on that so yeah it, it helped to hear outsiders say to me it's gonna be okay yeah i can imagine because you know it, it can be lonely especially when you're making a, a very big decision like that and so after you've kind of mentally made this decision you've said it out loud to your peer group what was the what was the first action step that you took you know uh one thing that helped me, and I, you know, things come into your life when they're supposed to, you know. So I, I was, I think I was watching a reading uh, when John Stewart was uh, announced that he was going to give up the Daily Show. One of his, the, I think the way he announced it is, you know, I, this show means everything to me. You, you, the audience, mean everything to me. But I am a restless host, and you don't deserve a restless host. So, for me. It was like, okay, that makes sense to me because I'm now restless and my employees deserve, particularly in the printing industry, because of how much change is going on, mm -hmm. my employees deserve, they don't deserve a restless owner. They deserve an owner who's all in to help them. So as soon as I sort of, you know, that was another wake-up call for me is I'm restless now. And that, that means I'm a little bit dangerous because I'm not all in. I'm, you know, I've got one foot out. So I then took that and said, okay then you got to make your move. And so I sat down with my financial advisor, my CPA, who's really connected into the graphic arts industry. And we drew up a list of 
of people we wanted to talk to. So we never hired a business broker. We never went out on the market. We drew up a short list of uh, friendly competitors that we wanted to talk to about buying the business. So um, when you have this list, I mean, was it was it local competitors? How did you, because I, th- I, I believe it was you that was talking about being very dialed into, um, I don't know if it was your time, di- dialed into your uh, your trade association. But, you know, what? so you said you didn't hire a business broker, but I think, wasn't there some sort of uh, experience that you had as you had found out that your the way to maximize and keep the employees was the competitive approach? So tell me kind of as you were making this list and not going down a financial buyer or business broker route, how did you kind of come to this conclusion? So it was kind of two part. I went, you know, I now now we're about three, we're about two and a half years away from my renewal decision for the uh, for the for the building, and so we went out we went out for. First, and we tested the market. We went out and probably talked to six or seven people on our list, and did the non-disclosures and confidentiality stuff. And what I found, what I got back in the first round, we ended up doing kind of this twice. But the first round surprised me. What I heard was we were about eight million dollars in sales. That we were really too small um, for a, you know, for a financial buyer to to run to buy a printing business and run it as is or standalone you know, we talked to people in the industry and everybody wanted to basically everybody loved the business it was very profitable we had great process we had great people we had great profitability but everybody because of the industry's uh, decline everybody wanted to roll it in and uh, bring it into their facility nobody needed more facility a second facility and at our size what i found out was we were really too small for, for a strategic buyer to run to run uh, the business on its own. I also got feedback that, you know, we had these amazing top five customers, but we were, when you put it all together, that was probably 40% of our business, and we were customer dependent. And so based on that, we weren't going to be an EBITDA multiple uh, candidate either because, you know, if one of those big customers had gone away. Uh, so I was going to be on an earnout. So uh, that first market test, we learned that we were too small, um, that nobody wanted the facility that because of the industry issues and the customer dependency that we were really going to be a tuck-in. And so that surprised me and uh, we came back in and sort of regrouped and pulled back for about six or seven months and then went back out the second time uh, really with a better plan, which is we are going to be the best um, tuck-in that you know ever lived. And on a one through 10, we're going to be at 12 as a tuck-in candidate, and we're going to pick the right culture and the right competitor um, that we want. And so we went out on the second uh, the second time with six six requirements of a buyer. So it was kind of a flip. We, we, we really kind of took the offense and said, if you want to buy us and do uh, the tuck-in, here's, here's the six things that we need. And we got all, and we got, and we got, we got, yeah. And we got all six things. I mean, um, my my CPA advisor has helped me. Said you're never going to get number six, but um, I did get number six. So I'll give them to you quick. So we went out and I said, really, what I said was, I'm going to do this as a 50-50 deal. I want 50% of this is going to be financially. I want, you know, the earnout money to work so that I can go do my second act. But the other 50% of the equations, I want the employees taken care of. And I'm not saying that that's 
you know, the, the right ratio for anybody. But if my advice to an owner that's thinking about selling is, you know, find out what's important for you and then get in front of that and then make sure you lead with that. So in my case, it was mm-hmm. going to be a 50-50 deal. And so the, the six things and, were... And before I interrupt you... Oh, go ahead. Uh, or, uh, sorry for interrupting is what I was saying. Is when you're going... I want to go into that, uh, just w- one question on the money piece, where was it... Did you come up with a net dollar amount and then anything else after that was the employees? Or how did you come up with the balance between those two? You know, I'd already, I had already done profit sharing and bonuses. And, you know, I felt like I'd done my work there. So... I wasn't looking to cut them in on the the sale money, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to make sure that their career. So when I said 50, 50, I I didn't mean it to be a financial payout. I meant it to be a career payout. I wanted to put them in another great situation for the, for their careers. And I, 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 stewardship wise, I knew because of the printing industry and some of the troubles in the printing industry that that was kind of be kind of my legacy to them is I was going to give them the best chance um, as they moved on in their careers. Well, and I, and, I, and I love what you did too because the one thing that I really struggled with after we sold was that um, we sold to a local competitor as well, um, which was they've got a fantastic business and a great culture. But because it was a tuck-in to use your, your terminology, there was a lot of redundancies and like less than half of the people had to really ended up staying. And mm-hmm. I was – and we needed that to make the numbers work for us and for the buyer – and so I would have loved to have all of them stay and had jobs because I wanted the legacy from all the stuff we had built too. So that, you know, I don't know how I would throw that into the ratio, but I, it was the only way to make it work for us. And it was severely devastating. So like you said, to know what you want and to realize after the fact that our employees were that important to us was, it, it kind of sucked. <laughs> I guess right. to put it. Okay. Yeah. And I can see that. I, I totally get that. I mean, we had, we had, uh, you know, we had worked together to, to build this great business. So I, I was clear on that, that they were going to get, from a career point of view, they were going to get taken care of in the deal. So when we went out. How did you buyer that, need, that needed all those employees and all that infrastructure? Well, you know what it was, was um, I, we had sold the facility. So, they, so the facility was taken care of, which is a big deal. I mean, that can, that can weigh you down big time. So the customers were going to go with the deal. So that's obviously the number one. But we, we, we had done such a great job managing our people side of the business that the, the competitor I sold to had, you know, 100 plus employees and we only had, you know, maybe 150, 160 and we had 40, we actually had 44 and we said these, these four, these other four, we recommend you take these 40 after looking at what they had and there was a couple of redundancies, but we basically said these 40 will fit well in your operation and these four um, you know, probably wouldn't work because of redundancies or whatever. And so they took 40 of the 44, and the, the punchline there is those other four got jobs immediately. I think everybody was employed. The other four that didn't go had jobs within two or three weeks. So that That's was the, awesome. the good news of that. But the 40, the 40 that went, we had, we had done such a great job with training and, and really coaching employees that, I, that we went through one by one with them in the uh, the the buyer of the business said, you know, if this is real, I mean, if these guys and gals are that good, you know, we're certainly going to take a look at them because we need to, you know, we'll, we'll take talent. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, the the end of that story is it's now, you know, 15 months since the sale and none of those 40 have been fired or let go. 
That's so awesome. Good. I mean, that's major props to you. I mean, that's awesome. And to them, uh, yeah, really, no, to our that's employees. A very good point. Yep. No. Because they showed up, and you know, they were fit. I mean, these. You know, if you want to put an analogy with the, the physical fitness, these guys and gals were working out in the business every day. They had the right attitude, the right skills, the right uh, uh, teamwork. And so when they landed, you know, they, they looked good. They didn't look redundant. I love it. Okay, so I interrupted you on your six. So you had the, the 50-50 and then there was the other five? Yeah, so the six, the six requirements um, was I wanted it to be locations. So I think you'd asked earlier, I wanted it to be um, the location needed to be close to us. And, and the reason for that is the, if, if the competitor wasn't close to us, we were going to lose employees, um, you know, because the commute going from, you know, Eden Prairie to, to Woodbury was going to be tough. And so that wasn't going to be good for the employees, but it also wasn't going to be good for my earnout. So, again, back to my mm-hmm. financial and people thing is, I knew if the employees stayed in the saddle, that was going to work good for them and good for me. The the, the number two is they had to be print-centric, so they had to be in love with print because some people are saying, I'm getting out of print, I'm going into marketing services. And I knew that if you're going to wander away from you know what you're good at, the core, that's going to cost you know employee jobs, and that's also going to cost me on the earn-out. Mm-hmm. The third one was, was they had to be service-orientated. They had to be a, a sales company. It's really important as the printing industry continues to mature and decline that you're really a service and a service um, company, so that was there. That also was going to do well with my earnout with the employees. They had to be bigger. Was number four. They had to have a uh, bigger capacity, bigger capabilities. That was one thing we were hitting the ceilings on. We just didn't have enough all the services to offer, and that was also going to be obviously good for the employees in terms of their future careers. Family base was important to me because I knew they would, you know, that just felt good. I think the employees enjoyed working for a, a family based business. Uh, and then the last one was, the sixth one was, they had to take the majority of the employees. And so my advisor said, you know, I had you through five, but you're not going to get six. <laughs> and I said, hey, hey, you asked, and that's what I want. So when we interviewed um, the second list, that's what we were interviewing for. And I remember when we first sat down, like in our second or third meeting, and the, the actual buyer who bought the business, we showed him our people analyzer, and we showed them all the, the strengths and weaknesses of the employees. And they're like, well, Hoff, where'd you get this? And I said, well, we do this every 90 days. And they're like, dang, we should be doing this. <laughs> but but we, we showed them, you know, everything that they were good at and everything they were cross-trained on. And uh, so, like I said earlier, they took, they took, they literally said, we, we, we trust this. We, we love what you've done with your employees. So we're, we're going to hire all 40 of them. And actually, the the phantom seventh requirement or request for me, I never actually brought it up. But the seventh one was I didn't want to sign an employment contract, but mm. I never brought it up because I knew I knew I was probably going to have to do a year or two. But in the end, because I sold to a competitor who was in our space and understood our business and took the whole management team and took the whole employee team, um, I just did about uh, six weeks of transition, and then I was off on my own. Wow! So when how many? people did you meet with to find this perfect match on the second round we had another list of about five and uh, i think they were the second people we talked to and um it went really well and we basically kicked out the advisors after this i think after the first meeting we said we'll call you guys if we need you and uh, me and the buyer just 
basically went man on man and um we just worked it out we we figured out what was important to both of us and we you know we both negotiated a good faith um offer and then we brought the attorneys in at the end and and uh and had them button it up so in that process of when it's just you two um obviously the f- it feels good which is super important i mean was there a big long due diligence process or what was the, what was the time frame of that whole that whole journey it did take us uh, seven months from sort of that initial meeting to closing. So, and we were all on the same page, and it still took seven months. And um, you know, I was already emotionally ready to go. They were, uh, they they wanted us, but it still took seven months of you know just doing the due diligence, two or three months of due diligence, and then you know the attorneys back and forth, and the holidays got in the way, and so it, it did take seven months to sort but the deal was pretty much cut in the first 60 days was there any surprises as you were constructing like the terms and conditions you know you, you've mentioned earnout a couple times i mean i don't know you don't have to give any numbers but do you, can you elaborate like on how you got into like the like the structure of what you put together and if there was any surprises that you saw as you were going through it you know once once we had gone out the first time and, and understood that um working with my timing of not having to renew the lease, uh, knowing that it was going to be a tuck in, there wasn't many surprises because on an earn out there, I was really going to get paid on the sales that were retained. And so, and the equipment that they bought. So there, there wasn't a lot of moving parts to the deal because it's like, well, if these customers are good and, and, the and the pricing is good, then then they're going to stay. And if we service them well, um, it's just going to work. Um, and they're hiring everybody, all of our employees. So there there wasn't a lot of surprises because we're really just working off of after closing. Um, I'm going to get paid mostly on the sales retention. And it was an asset sale, I'm assuming. Yes. So you 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 you've mentioned the kind of the the building and you did some maneuvering with that. Can you kind of elaborate? Because I think you know in the mid market with a lot of companies around your size, there's the building is a huge piece of the asset of, and and the net worth of the the business owner, which was the same thing in our case too. And you did some interesting stuff from the first time you went to the second time. Can you kind of elaborate on that? So you know, um, luck is defined when opportunity. Um, meets preparedness. And so I kind of knew that the itch was getting stronger, but we had the the facility and we own the facility. So me and my family members own the facility. And so the last thing I wanted to do was uh, put, put my family members in, in a, in a vacant building. And so uh, we had a local business that was kitty corner from us that wanted to expand. And they came knocking a couple of times and said, you know, we want to buy, part of the parking lot and we told them no 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 and then as my sort of itch got stronger i said well you know maybe this would be a way of of sort of taking the facility out of this uh exit uh, equation and so the third time they came knocking i said well we can't sell you the part of the parking lot but we can sell you, sell you the whole parking lot and facility and then we'll do a lease back and, uh, you know, they wanted a 10-year lease, and I said, well, no, we'll, we'll do the three-year lease that's remaining, and then I want a three-year option to renew on my option. So that, you know, it was a bit lucky, but, you know, if you're, if you're thinking ahead and you're looking at landing your plane 
and you know what your exit, you know, five, my, mine was a five year thing. I said, when I was 48, I wanted to be out by 53 and I got out at 51 and that facility kind of helped the facility sale really helped it because yeah, if, if we hadn't done that, I would have, I personally, me, I, I was the hundred percent owner of the business, mm-hmm. but I would have had to pay the uh, partnership that owned the real estate. So I would have, you know, that would have been out a lot of money as it turned out. I I wasn't out any money because we timed the lease expiring to the sale of a business. But that was a that was a big deal. If I had not, not had that flexibility of getting out from underneath the real estate, you know, I might I might still I might still be working on this. That so, thank you very much for clarifying that. Cause, and that is just like you said. I mean, it's luck, but you did a lot of you knew where your head was at, so you wouldn't have been able to take that opportunity had you not been prepared. So I 100% agree with you. But when I heard the story the first time, I was actually thinking that, so a lot of people have it rolled under like one corporation or something like that. So when when you told the story the first time, I thought you actually just like separated the entities. So when you were saying like you were kind of worried about your lease coming up, I'm like, well, it's your own, you're only negotiating with yourself. So it's really not that big of a deal. But then, no, I totally get it. Cause you were, I mean, you were gonna have a third party that was gonna lock you into your own building or they're building yep. for another five years. So you're right. You would have been in there for, you know, until you're 60 or something like that. So it's, and the industry has changed a lot. So yeah, I, I totally get the stress that you were dealing with. Well, I will tell you the blessing in that is, as a small business owner is that I had a hard deadline. And that was probably the most important yeah. thing <laughs> yeah. that I had a ticker going on me. And so every month that went by, you know, as I went out the second time, I was probably at about 18 months. And then I was at, you know, then I was screwing around and, you know, then people were taking time. Then I was at 14 months and then I was at 11 months. And it was like, okay, now I'm less than a year away. And if I don't get this deal done, I'm going to have to renew the building lease, which is going to keep me in. So it was great to have, you know, not a not an actual like hypothetical deadline. I actually had a hard deadline where... If I if I didn't have a deal in my hand, I had to renew the building lease. Yeah, I mean it's it's a beautiful structure that you put into place, and and the reason that you did that too, I just think for the listeners, just to kind of rack back on what you were originally saying, is because you realized it was going to be a, a tuck under, right? Because in a financial situation on a standalone, the building sometimes is like really necessary to get the deal done because like an SBA loan will be tied to it, and that's what actually funds the deal. But you had already kind of eliminated that decision, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah, because it's you know I, there's there's even more challenges. Had you needed to sell it to someone else without a building, and it was just going to be a standalone, like another lifestyle buyer or something like that. Right. Absolutely. And um, you know, a vacant building is financially is not not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> So now that you're off on the second half of your life and pursuing your passions, is there any regrets that you have or anything that you've got from the hindsight um, that you would have done differently? No, you know, I, I miss the employees. I, I miss that culture, but I know everybody's going to be better off because I was going to, I was too restless and you can't be restless in a small business and as an owner and you certainly can't be restless as a small business owner in the graphic arts industry. So right. um, I feel good about that. I, I, I did my job with uh, as best I could with the employees. I got them into a better, you know, longer-term career path. 
So no regrets there. You know, I guess the, one of the reasons why I don't have any regrets is the deal did come through perfectly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got what I wanted financially. I'm, I got what I needed. I, you know, I got all the employees' jobs. So, you know, I had some emotional checks on it that, that everything went according to plan. So there was no uh, missteps there. But I think the other big thing I had was I knew what I wanted to do in my second act, I called it. So, you know, I was running this great business with great people and we were making, you know, really good money. And now I am helping other business owners build great businesses and building, you know, hopefully a better life for them. So I have, my second act was really clear for me and I moved right into it. And so I have something else that I'm passionate Mm -hmm. about. And so to me, I don't have any regrets because I'm kind of doing what I was doing at West. I'm kind of doing it full time, but I'm now doing it with five or 10 business owners. So it's, I think it's really important to figure out what you're going to do after because I'm, I, you know, I sold it at 51, but I know what I'm going to be doing as my second act for the, for the next 20 years. And so I, that to me is, is really healthy and keeps me going. You know, the back to the Hawaiian contractor, my mentor, he actually had a third act already planned out. I said, what? And he goes, oh, yeah, I already know my third act. And I go, well, the second act is uh, construction consulting. So he's doing consulting for cons- uh, construction owners. And I said, well, what's the third act? And he goes, you know that guy or gal when you go into the movie theater that takes your ticket and says, hey, Mr. <laughs> hey, Mr. Hey, Mr. Karen, uh, what movie are you seeing today? Oh, I'm seeing The Mummy. Oh, it's a fantastic remake. You know, I hope you have fun. I'll see you next time. He goes, that's what I'm I want to do. I want to be the guy taking tickets. <laughs> that's that's some serious uh, ambition there. I love it. You, you know, in this, you you hit on a lot of really really good points, and I'm just kind of curious as you. So even though you knew what you wanted, Tim, is there what's the what's what was the one thing that helped you the most in the transition in that from being the business owner to the consultant? What was the one thing that helped you re? identify who you were? Well, that's a big question. I, I think it's, be, I think it's uh, underneath all of that is sort of the passion for getting better and making improvements. And so I knew that, you know, at the end of the day, that's kind of a little bit of my DNA. One of my strongest passions is this uh, ability to, to make improvements and to make things want to make things better. And so I think that pulled me through because it was a very emotional, I mean, telling employees you're selling it uh, and going through that you know, transition of moving out of the business that I had been in since I was 13 or 14 years old. I mean, it was, so my anchor, I think, was um, at the end of the day, I, I was going to be able to be true to myself and I was really going to be able to continue doing what I was doing just in a different way. And so I, I didn't, I you know, I didn't have a, I didn't have a major sort of um, break in who I was in terms of my personality and and uh, my passion. I love it. True to yourself. I mean, that's you can tell, you can tell you're enjoying what you're doing too, which is, which is absolutely fantastic. I'm sure all your customers enjoy it too. Um, what is the best way that our listeners can get in touch with you, Tim? Uh, they can go onto my website. It's. Uh, altusba.com so a-l-t-u-s dot com or uh, my email is tim at altusba.com they can find me on LinkedIn as well thank you so much for coming on the show Tim you bet Ryan thank you Mm -hmm.